I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 50. Jeremiah 50. We've been engaged now for quite some time in an expositional series through the New Testament epistle of 1 Corinthians. But as is our custom, when we conclude a chapter, we often will take a break and... My heart uh, has just been so captivated and my spirit has just been so fixated upon the foundational and fundamental truths of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I don't believe that a preacher is ever going to get to heaven and have to explain to God why he preached too much about the gospel. And focus too much on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that our Lord will speak to us and encourage us this morning. And I just want to look at one verse of Scripture with you. That is Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse number 20. Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse number 20. These are the words... Of God. In those days, and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found. For I will pardon them whom I reserve. In the beginning, the Bible tells us that man was created and placed into a garden and he was given the privilege of enjoying communion with his creator. However, it doesn't take you very many page turns in your Bible to realize that a great problem entered into the human race that marred this fellowship that hindered the relationship between the creature and the Creator. Not only did it hinder it, it it ruined it. It it, it killed it. That problem, of course, is the problem of sin. Isaiah 59 in verse 2 says, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you. It, It is sin that has caused God to to reject mankind. It is sin uh, that, that has ruined our ability to commune with the One who created us in His own image. Man, now, after the fall, in the image of God is like a, a tombstone. You can, you can still see a little bit of the name and you can still make out the, the years and the dash, but, but it's so marred from what it once was after years of being exposed to the elements in the cemetery and the rain and the snow and, and now the tombstone is nothing like what it once looked when it was originally placed there and so too has sin marred the image of God in man. Man does not want to recognize his problem. We see that by the, the offer of so many different social and philosophical programs that, that promise a better life. 
If you'll just do X, Y, and Z and, and just do A, B, and C, then, then you'll have the, the fulfillment that you chase after. But, but the Bible tells us you're not ever going to have the fulfillment that your soul longs for, the satisfaction of, of your soul, until you deal with this problem of sin. And any scheme of salvation must deal with the problem of sin. It, it must. You, you can't have the good news until you realize just how bad the bad news is. But in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, the reason why the gospel is so precious and so glorious is because it does just that. It deals with the problem of our sin. It, it removes the thing that hinders us from being able to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. It, it, it removes the thing that, that causes the pronouncement of condemnation upon us. And it restores us. It, it, it places us back in that original right standing and fellowship with God. There are in this verse four gospel truths that demonstrate how God has solved the problem of sin in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Four gospel truths. And last uh, Wednesday night, I had to repent before the church for my homiletical insufficiency. My, my outline was, was lacking much to be desired. In fact, my main points didn't even have the, the consistency of the same parts of speech in them. I barely found the same letter to start the words with. It was very pitiful. So I thought, this Lord's Day, I have to really do something to make it up to my church. So I want you to be aware that, that we have the same parts of speech and, and above and beyond just same letter alliteration. We have internal alliteration. And, and I want you to really uh, remember these four truths, these central tenets to the gospel. These, these words may be a bit technical, but that's okay. We need the words of the Bible and we need the words that God has, has encouraged men and women who have studied the Bible to use to, to drive home these glorious truths of what God has done for us. So I want you to see just in this verse, restoration, expiation, propitiation, and preservation. And I want you to also note, as is obvious... When we talk about the message of the gospel of Christ, it is a message that unbelievers need. Because if they fail to deal with the problem of sin, their sin will condemn them. Their sin will bring them to hell. Their sin will receive the just penalty that is reserved for all those who stand before God on the last day in unrepentant sin. Oh, but brothers and sisters, believers need this message as well. Christian, you need to be reminded of what God has done for you, what He is doing for you, what He has promised to do for you. You need to be reminded of where He's brought you from and where He's taking you to to find the encouragement and the, the, the satisfaction of the Christian life. The only sin that can be overcome is a forgiven sin. If you are sitting here and you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you know that 
that the fullness of joy and the, the closeness of fellowship is hindered because of sin in your life, the first thing that you must realize is that is a forgiven sin that God has already dealt with and taken care of by the gospel of His Son. Then and only then can you deal with it in your life. So let's look at verse 20. And if I could give you a title, it would be this. What happened to your sins? What happened to your sins? Notice, firstly, I want you to see restoration. Restoration in verse 20. Our verse begins, In those days and in that time. And so the the question then becomes for us, well, what days and what time? Well, the historical context of Jeremiah 50 is the pronouncement of destruction upon the nations of Assyria and Babylon and the return of Israel from captivity. That's the historical context in which we find this chapter. And it is true that there was indeed a partial fulfillment of this verse in the Old Testament. But if if the only fulfillment of this verse happened in the Old Testament, then I really have nothing to preach to you today. (laughs) Only really in modern times, and ironically enough, in the name of conservative theology, (laughs) has a very rigidly grammatical and historical hermeneutic been idolized as the only way to interpret the Old Testament. So there are those that would say that as you read through Jeremiah and as you come to verse 20, that you have no right to interpret Jeremiah 50 and verse 20 outside of the the immediate historical context. And uh, certainly we do want to begin with the grammatical and historical context of Jeremiah 50. But, beloved, I want you to see that not only is there a human author, a human prophet, who has a limited scope and a limited knowledge and a limited purview, but in the the text of Scripture, which was breathed out by God, there is also the intention of the divine author. Mm -hmm. That's how you must read your Old Testament. What is the divine author saying to me in this verse? And, what the divine author says will always be consistent with what the human author says. But as, as theologians in the Reformation era would, would, would call it the, the census plenor or the, the fuller sense of Scripture that comes when we use a, a hermeneutic that is not only grammatical and historical, but that is also redemptive and Christological so that we might see what it is that God is saying to us in light of the totality of His revelation. Jeremiah does not have the New Testament. Jeremiah does not see all that God has allowed us to see. But when we take Jeremiah and when we read him in light of all that God has revealed to us, we see that this partial fulfillment was just that. It was a partial fulfillment. And we see that Jeremiah is pointing forward to that great, glorious, eschatological church And the destruction of mystical Assyria and spiritual Babylon. There is in our restoration an already not yet aspect. You have in a sense already been called out of sin's bondage. 
When you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, He brought you out of that kingdom of darkness and He translated you into the kingdom of His dear Son. Just as He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Egyptian bondage, of course, is a a type of of sin and a state of, of enslavement to our iniquity and that condition of total depravity. But but if you follow the the typological aspect of the church in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament, you ask the question, well, where is the church today? Well, we are in exile. We are strangers and pilgrims. Is that not what Peter tells us very explicitly in his epistle? So we find ourselves in the in-between. The already, but the not yet. Yes, he's, he's brought us out. Yes, we're no longer enslaved to our sin, but we're not at that final destination yet. And, and we see this very explicitly in places like 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul will actually use arguments from Israel in exile when they were wandering, and he'll say, don't commit the same sins they committed. But rather, in our time of exile, God calls us to be faithful to Him and to follow Him. And just as He led His people throughout their exile, through the Word, through the the cloud, through the fire, so He will lead us today with the Word of God, the fellowship of His saints. And beloved, there is coming a day in which our restoration will be final. When God will consummate this calling out of His people. When God will will bring an end to our exile and our captivity in a foreign land. We believe in the God, as Paul says, who has delivered, who does deliver, and who will deliver. You have been saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been liberated from the penalty of your sin. There is no pronouncement of condemnation. Romans 8 and verse 1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And right now, you are being saved from the power of your sin as the Holy Spirit works in sanctifying grace and as He, as he destroys the, the besetting sins and, and as He uh, fights against, the, as Galatians says, the, the Spirit against the flesh, the flesh against the Spirit, conforming you into the image of Christ. And it's true that this holiness will never reach its perfection in this life. But believer, you will not be sinless, but you will sin less in the Christian life. We certainly would never want to put anyone under the yoke of bondage and rob them of the preciousness of their assurance, but yet at the same time, we must not uh, go the way of some and to say that that progressive sanctification is, is in no way an indicator of our right relationship with God. Is He sanctifying you? Is He working upon you? You say, well... Well, I, th- I thought He was sanctifying me, uh, but, but here lately it seems like I've experienced greater conviction and a greater struggle than before. 
Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that your sins are more than they used to be. It could very well just simply mean that God, by His grace, is making you more aware of your sins. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Oh, but beloved, there's coming a day in which we will not only be saved from the penalty of sin and saved from the power of sin, but we will be saved at the end of this restoration from the very presence of our sin. No temptation. The struggle will be over. We will lay down the armaments of our battle and we will enter into the rest of our Father's kingdom. But you're not there yet, so put on the whole armor of God. When we have a few men in our church that have served in the military, that have served on the police force, and I, I, I would imagine, I, I believe he, he would testify that every morning when Officer Alan Roney would put on all of that gear, he was already looking forward to coming home and taking it off and resting. But he knew that in order to be able to come home and take it off and rest in safety and in peace, he had to first go out and don that armor and serve Fulfill his duty. So Christian, put on that armor. Go out. War a good warfare. But not as one who has no hope, but as one who knows that there's coming a day when rest shall be consummate. This is the the restoration. And we see another wonderful truth here is that, that our restoration, our salvation, comes through the judgment of God's enemies. And notice in verses 17 through 19, He says, Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. And the lions are, are of course, the kings of Assyria and Babylon. First, the king of Assyria hath devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Do do you sometimes, Christian, do you sometimes just feel beat down by this world? (laughs) By all of the sinful, wicked systems that plot together against the Lord and against His people? They break your bones. They devour you. Verse 18, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. God's going to destroy the spiritual enemies that oppose themselves against his kingdom and against his people. Uh, I'll admit to you, that I have no desire to be a reconstructionist. I have no desire to go out and seek to reform this this earthly kingdom. Uh, I want to be faithful in this kingdom, and I want to remember that my citizenship is in heaven. I'm not a reconstructionist, but pardon this, God is a deconstructionist, and at the end of the age, He will destroy everything that stands and opposes itself against Him, and in that destruction will come our salvation. Verse 19, And I will bring Israel again to His habitation. He shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and His soul shall be satisfied. Mm. All throughout the Old Testament, Carmel, Bashan, types and pictures and illustrations of, of prosperity. And the prosperity that God has in store for us is not like the prosperity that this world longs for. It is a heavenly prosperity. Money will run out. Fame and fortune will dissipate. All the drugs and all the alcohol will will lose their power. But the 
prosperity that God promises to His people is an eternal inheritance with Him that shall never end. This is our restoration. And this is the spiritual context of verse 20. Setting that stage, let me show you why this, the culmination of this restoration is really so glorious. I want you to see, secondly, expiation. Expiation. What is expiation? Well, it's a theological word that refers to the total and final removal of all sin. That's what expiation means. We've studied that word as we've gone through our series in Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied on Wednesday nights. And we've seen how in the atonement, God has made the provision for our sins to be expiated, to be removed. When our exile is over and we enter into that promised land and we stand before the judge of all the earth, a judgment will take place and a search will be conducted. Notice what the verse says. The verse really has the flavor of of a legal setting. In verse 20 it says, In that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for. In this heavenly courtroom, there will be a searching out for sin. Every wicked deed will be uncovered. The books will be opened up. Every sin that has ever been committed will be out in the open. The things that you will successfully hide all the days of your life will be open before God. Mm-hmm. You know, some people spend their whole lives searching for things. If you have ever watched one of those reality shows, you know, people will spend their whole life looking for Bigfoot or aliens or a little piece of wood that they think was part of Noah's Ark, right? Or the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if they're ever going to find any of those things. But beloved, there's something in our verse that shall never be found. There's something in our verse that though all of the heavenly hosts would go out looking for it, they will never find it. And that is the sins of God's people in the day of judgment. When the books are open and every, every wicked sinner is standing before God and we are standing there too and we might even think to ourselves because we, we still have this recognition of who we are as sinners, we might think to ourselves, Lord, what will be our punishment? What must we have to suffer on account of our sins? And we will hear from the throne, what sins are you talking about? God's reply will be, your sins? Oh, I went out looking for your sins. I searched high and low for your sins. But all I saw was the blood of my son. All I saw was a crucified Savior. I I didn't find your sins. I didn't see your iniquity. All I saw was the Lord Jesus Christ in your place, suffering for you. That's what I saw. What sins are you talking about? 
I'm happy to report to you this morning that I will stand before God on that day with a holy boldness because 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary, my sins were taken away from me and I bear them no more. He has expiated them. He's removed them. They're not mine on that day. They won't be mine. I won't have them. Now, remember that this verse describes expiation in its eschatological reality. This was really something that the Lord helped me to understand as I was preparing for this Lord's Day. Because I think you will know all too well the struggle that I'm about to explain and and describe. You say, okay, preacher, that sounds great. That makes for good preaching. No, no sin. The sins are gone. They're forgotten. Then please tell me why I, as a Christian, still feel so miserable for all of my sins. <laughs> that, does that struggle ring a bell? Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, again, remember, in the moment that you place your faith in Christ, you are justified. And the penalty and the condemnation of your sin is entirely removed. <laughs> Your expiation, the the complete and final removal of your sins and all of their practical effects upon you is a guarantee. But it's not something that we've entered into the fullness of yet. This is talking about what's going to happen on the day of judgment. You are saved from the legal penalty of your sins, but oh, you still feel them, do you not? (laughs) And moreover you know that God is aware of them. Because when you commit them, He chastens you. So in this life, beloved, sometimes it doesn't feel like He's forgotten about our sins. (laughs) And that's because there's a sense in which, in this life, He hasn't. But this day, this verse, looks forward to that great time that that we find all throughout the Scriptures. The day we see in Hebrews 8 and verse 12 when God will say, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This is the day of Micah 7 and verse 19 when God casts our sins into the depths of the sea. This is the the verse of Isaiah 38 and verse 17 when God casts our sins behind His back. This is the day of Psalm 103 and verse 12 when God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Do you know what's so wonderful about that verse? Removing our sin as far as the east is from the west? Because if you head north, you will eventually go so far north that you begin to head south. But do you realize that you can head east and keep going east and keep going east and keep going east, and there's never going to come a time when you're going west. So far has the Lord removed your sins from you. They'll never come back. They'll never return. You'll never receive double jeopardy. You won't have to worry about standing before God on that day and some sin that, that, well, maybe you forgot to confess this one and repent of this one. It's going to creep back up and drag you down. No, all of them. Sins of omission, sins of commission. 
Sins that you are very aware of and felt deep conviction over and sins that honestly didn't bother you as they should, even those sins will be taken away. I love how John Gill puts it. Listen to this. Talking about the sins of believers on the day of judgment. Wherefore, should they be sought for by Satan or by the law and justice of God, they will never be found. All is removed from them, covered out of the sight of God, hid from the eye of avenging justice, never remembered or seen more, but buried in everlasting oblivion and obscurity. I long for that day. I long for that day when all my sins and all of my transgressions shall be removed from me once and for all. I'll never struggle with them. I'll never be tempted to commit them again. They never again will will get inside of my conscience and make me feel guilt and remorse. Moreover, God will never discipline me anymore, but my discipline will be complete on that day. You realize that in heaven, there will never be cause for you as a Christian to have to Go to your Father and confess and repent of daily sin. You will not have to pray, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. (laughs) Because all of our sins will be gone. Cast into the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. And God will say, what sins are you talking about? Thirdly, in this text, I want you to see that there is also propitiation. Propitiation. What does that word mean? Well, expiation refers to the removal of our sins, but propitiation refers to the satisfaction of God's justice. So, you can think about it this way. Expiation is something that happens to us Propitiation is something, first and foremost, that happens between God the Father and God the Son. And it is propitiation that explains for us how God removes our sin. God does not remove your sin, believer, in a way that would violate His justice. There there are some who, who may commit a crime... And they they may actually be guilty and the court will even acknowledge their guilt and they will plead their guilt, but then they'll take some sort of plea deal and they won't actually do the penalty prescribed for that crime. In even worse cases, there are times when uh, a human judge who who might be arbitrary or for whatever reason, he woke up on the, the right side of the bed and he just says, I'm feeling good today, I will let you go. I will pardon you. But brothers and sisters, that is pardon often at times at the expense of justice. That is not how God pardons us. That is not how He propitiates. In fact, that is not propitiation. God has has issued a, a decree in His Word that the wages of sin is death. He has told us that the soul that sinneth, it must die. 
He told Adam in the garden, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And God does not violate His own word to pardon you. God does not remove our sins by sweeping them under the rug and pretending like they're not there. God removes our sins by putting them out in the open and executing the fullness of His wrath upon them. The wages of sin is death. And if I'm going to be pardoned, if you're going to be pardoned, someone has to die. See, in verse 20, where God says, I will pardon them. And I read that verse, and, and I see that this is, this is pardon, this is propitiation, this is the satisfaction of God when He says, I will pardon them. And what He's saying is, I will look at them and I will be satisfied. How could God ever look at a sinner like Ken Glish and be satisfied? I'll tell you how. Because on the cross, He looked at Jesus and He saw everything about me that was unsatisfying. And He poured out just wrath upon all of that unsatisfaction so that He can now look at me and see everything about Jesus that is satisfying. The best about Him given to me, the worst about me given to Him, and what we have now is a God in heaven who is entirely satisfied in the dispensation of His wrath. He is entirely satisfied in the performance of His justice. Oh, but He's also perfectly satisfied in the outpouring of His grace and in the offer of His mercy. All of us naturally have an inward desire to satisfy our loved ones. Think especially, there's something special that God has, has created within us, especially to want the satisfaction of our Father. Every little boy and every little girl longs and craves for their earthly father to look at them and say, Son, daughter, I'm satisfied with you. In the right kind of sense, I'm proud of you. I look at you and I am pleased that you are my son or my daughter. And I want you to understand that in and of yourself, you will never merit anything that brings the satisfaction of God. But there is one and only one whom God has said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He offers up everything about Him that is pleasing to God to you to receive it by faith. If you receive Christ by faith, you are not partially pleasing to God. You are, you are not a little bit more pleasing to God than sinners who aren't pleasing to God. You are fully accepted. You are totally pleasing. He looks at you and he says, you are altogether lovely. First and foremost, because you're represented by the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, brothers and sisters. Because when he redeems you, when he removes your sin, when he propitiates the, right, the wrath of God and he grants you his righteousness and gives his Holy Spirit to you, he then, by his own grace and power, enables you 
redeemed saint to actually do good works that he is pleased with. What a, what a joy, what a treasure it is to know that you can please God. You can please God. But when you, when you wake up in the morning and He is on your mind and you open His Word and you hear Him speak to you and you speak back to Him in prayer, that's pleasing to Him. He's pleased by that. When you assemble with His saints and, and you sing hymns and you sing the psalms, He's pleased by that. Not just because you, you are or off on key. <laughs> Not because you know the words to the hymns. He doesn't care if you know the words to the hymns. He just wants to hear you. Your voice is pleasing to Him. Your prayers are pleasing to Him. Your, your acts of love towards your brothers and sisters are pleasing to Him. He says earlier in Jeremiah, I believe it's in chapter 9, where He says, I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness. And then He tells us that it's in these things that I delight. Where does God delight in love and kindness and grace and mercy and holiness? Well, first and foremost, He delights in those things as He sees them in Himself. Oh, but brothers and sisters, He also delights in those things as He sees them reflected in His people. This morning, what we are doing is very pleasing to Him. The beautiful thing about His Word and the beautiful thing about the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is that we don't have to wonder what's pleasing to Him. He tells us what's pleasing to Him. (laughs) And we can believe and trust that even if we might not necessarily have some emotional experience, we're pleasing Him. We're pleasing Him. Why? Because our sins have been removed. They've been expiated. Why? Because His wrath has been propitiated. It's been satisfied. Ask yourself this question. If if God has already poured out all of His wrath and all of His condemnation upon your sins, on Christ, on the cross, what is left for you? Grace. Love. Mercy. Kindness. Fellowship. Communion. Christ did not receive that on the cross so that you could receive it in this life and in eternity. Oh, what a blessing. What a blessing. Let me be so bold as to say this. If Christ has taken your sins and satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf, God cannot but pardon you. When you stand before Him on that day, if you were to be asked, why should I let you in? You have to. Because Christ died for me. And He shall see the travail of His soul. And He shall be satisfied. And He shall receive the price for which He died. And he did not get gift on the cross. He did not purchase some that will perish. He did not shed His blood in vain. He's going to receive every blood-bought sinner that He died for on the cross. Not because of anything I did. The Christian testimony does not begin with I. It begins with Him. It begins with Him. 
And, and that's not arrogance. It's not pride. That is simply the, the, the truth of His justice and His mercy and His covenant promise to us. Lord, You have to because He died. For God to forsake His own, He would have to cease to be God. So there is propitiation. If I could speak with a pastoral heart, God is not angry with you, Christian. He's not. You might feel that His face has turned away, and indeed, there might be, there might be some sin in your life that is hindering the, the fullness of joy of that fellowship, and there might be discipline, but it's not punitive discipline. He's not angry with you. It's corrective discipline. It's restorative discipline. He loves you. And He loves you so much, He's not going to allow you to remain in the sins that His Son died to save you from. He's going to call you out. He's going to make you His own. He's going to make you fit for His presence. You go to a God that is fully satisfied with you because of Christ. And there you confess your sin and you receive practical experiential forgiveness. But you do so knowing that your sins have already been eternally dealt with by the blood of the Savior. Well, lastly, I want you to see in this verse the truth of preservation. Preservation. Notice he says, I will pardon them whom I reserve. Whom I reserve. Our God has a remnant in every generation, in every age. Yes, it is true that not all Israel is of Israel. And that's why, though there were uh, two, three, four million individuals that were called out of Egypt, there were only a handful that actually entered the land. But in the, in the new covenant, which really is new, by the way, in the new covenant, we are the, this remnant. The, the church is made up of that remnant. And, and this, this word here, God speaking of, of reserving His people, it speaks to us about the fact that the finality of sin's removal and Christ's satisfaction shall never perish and shall never vanish away. He reserves us for Himself. He keeps us from condemnation. And the guilt of our sins is never going to return. He says it like this in Romans 8 and verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ that died, and it is God that justified. Who is he that condemneth? Do, do, who do you believe in the Christian life? Do you believe God or do you believe the devil? God says, I'll justify you. Satan says, you're condemned. Who do you believe? Your sins say that you're going to perish and go to hell, but Jesus Christ says, I have died to redeem you. Who do you believe? This blood-bought remnant is preserved unto God until the final day. You say, why, why preserved? Why why safeguard it as his own peculiar possession? Because after that judgment, 
when, when, when the wheat is separated from the tares, when the sheep are separated from the goats, all those that, that there was no sin found in them, there was no iniquity found in them, but they're donning these, these white heavenly garments, well, there's going to be a wedding. There's going to be a bridegroom. And in Ephesians 5 and in verse 27, we find out why He is preserving us. That He might present it. This blood-bought remnant, this bride, this heavenly eschatological church, that He might present it to Himself. A glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That it should be holy and without blemish. Sometimes I make the mistake of looking in the mirror too early in the morning and I say, well, I wasn't ready to see that. And I consider my life. I mean, I just consider the sins I committed in the last week. And I say, how can this be true of me? There's so many wrinkles. There's so many blemishes. There's so many spots. There's so many bad memories and so many regrets. How could I be the bride of Christ? Because at the end of the day, it's not about me. The gospel's not about what you've done. It's about what He has done. I've heard one preacher say that if you're really, if you're really preaching the gospel truly and powerfully and unmitigatedly, you'll almost be afraid of just how free the offer of grace is. You know what I mean by that? I mean, to stand up and to, to tell you that it doesn't matter what sin you've ever committed, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how bad and how evil and how wicked you've been, you will be the bride of Christ. I heard another say that if, you're, if half of them are accusing you of being a legalist and half of them are accusing you of being antinomian, you're probably right where you need to be. And I can say that to you, not because God's standard of holiness is, is any lower than it used to be, but because of what He has done. Because of the salvation that He offers. He will preserve His people, okay? Well, there's my charge of antinomianism. Let me give you a little charge of legalism. Don't let the doctrine of preservation be a license for sin or procrastination. Do not say, well, the preacher said, God saves me. Christ dies to pay for my sins. He even said it. It's not about what I do, so therefore I guess I'll just sit around and twiddle my thumbs until God saves me. The problem with that is it's humanistic logic and it's just simply not what the Bible says. The Bible says, seek Him while He may be found. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a whole bunch of stuff to do so that you can earn it. No, I'll give you rest, but you've got to come to me. You've got to come to me. For the unbeliever, do not boast yourself in tomorrow. What is tomorrow? Tomorrow doesn't exist. 
That's always a true statement, by the way. Tomorrow doesn't exist. All you have is right now. What is your life? It is but a vapor. And this life that is a vapor, and this tomorrow that doesn't exist, and this today that is the day of salvation is the time that God has allotted for you to have your sins washed away by the Savior's blood. You will not receive Him when you stand before Him on that day if you have not received Him in this life. Or should I say, He will not receive you then if you have not received Him here. But even even for the Christian, this doctrine of preservation, wrongly applied and wrongly followed, can allow patterns of complacency and licentiousness to take root within us. You might look at the truth and say, well, there's coming a day in which all my sins will be taken away. And I know I'm justified. And I know that I could go out right now and commit a sin and God would forgive it. Let me ask you this. How do you want to get to heaven? Do you want to get to heaven limping into glory on crutches? Do you want to to get into heaven having really never experienced the fullness of joy that is offered to you here in this life? Or do you want to go to heaven with crowns to cast at His feet? Do you want to go to heaven having spent this life preparing for that day? Going to heaven having having read the Word of God, having, having sought for Him with great expectancy and then having all of those hopes fulfilled on that day? Yes, your sins are forgiven, but in this life they are not forgotten. Especially Christian, young Christian. Do not live the kind of Christian life that will cause you to spend maybe 30, 40, 50 years daily bearing the guilt of a sin that you committed in your youth because you thought, well, God will preserve me. Our, our, our human bodies bear the scars of, of car accidents and of, of uh, mishaps and accidents and, and we bear those scars in our body for the rest of our life. So too does the conscience oftentimes bear those kind of scars. You ask someone who's been walking with the Lord for a number of years... No, no one will tell you, oh yes, I, I'm, I'm so glad that I committed that sin when I was 22 so that God could demonstrate His mercy and grace. No, they don't, they don't give that testimony, not if they really understand His mercy and His grace. They say, yes, I know it's forgiven. Yes, I know it's expiated. Yes, I know it's removed. Yes, I know it will not condemn me, but oh, how I still lament and repent of it every day. Wish I had never done it. There is perhaps few blessings greater in this life for the child of God than to walk with his God with a clear conscience. Don't be the one who prays, Lord, save me, but not today. Lord, make me holy, but not entirely. 
Lord, take my sin away, but not all of them just yet. Let me enjoy them for a little while before you continue your work of sanctification. But may God make these gospel realities, these truths of what He has done, transform the way we view ourselves, the way we view our sin, the way we view ourselves in relation to Him. Make sure that you can sing on that last day. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That is the plea that we must all have when we stand before Him on that day. And God promises that that will be our plea. If we trust in the one He has sent, He'll bring us out of captivity, He'll restore us. Then He'll clean us off, remove our sins, cast them away from us. Then His wrath will be satisfied, His justice will be propitiated, we will receive and partake of that grace, and we will be preserved in this life and throughout all of eternity. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive it. Believe it. Cling to it. Never depart from it. Rest in it. Triumph in it. Glory in it. Boast in it. It's all that we have. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this powerful message. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We thank you for the truth that you have propitiated your wrath, that you are not angry with us, that we are forgiven, that we stand justified in the beloved, accepted by our heavenly Savior. Lord, I pray that you would give us all a a great rejoicing and a freedom knowing that our sins have been taken away from us. And Lord, that we would rest in the finished work of Christ, but that it would not be a rest of complacency, but a rest of preservation and perseverance as we rest in Him all the way to glory. Lord, we love You. We praise You. We thank You in Jesus' name. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain. Amen. Amen.